Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.36, Missy of Redinburgh, The Only Man in Romania. Last time, we saw Missy grow in stature and confidence, transforming herself into a real force in Romanian politics. She became the royal figurehead for the alliance with Britain and France, something that became increasingly important after the outbreak of World War I. After the old king died and her husband came to the throne, she and her allies combined their efforts to prepare their country for war and persuade the king to go against his German heritage and declare war on the Central Powers. Today, we will see how that all turned out, and what impact Missy had both on the war and the subsequent peace talks. But before we get going, I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters that keep this show going. In particular, I'd like to thank my latest patrons, Gloria and Katie. You're both fantastic. Thank you so, so much. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Romania entered World War I on the 27th of August, 1916. From the moment that they did so, they were surrounded. I put a map in the show notes to help illustrate the problem, but for those of you whose hands aren't free, I'll talk you through it. The easiest way to picture Romania as it was in 1916 is to think of a hand giving a thumbs up. To the north was the Russian Empire, with whom it was now allied. To the west was Austria-Hungary, and its ethnically Romanian-dominated province of Transylvania. Capturing that was Romania's main war aim. To the south is Bulgaria, which had joined the Central Powers the year before. They were supported too by Ottoman forces, though they had other priorities. As for Romania's allies, well, the only one with whom they had direct contact was the Russian Empire, who were attacking Austria-Hungary along Romania's western border, There was also an Entente army led by the French, based in Salonika in modern Greece, which was preparing for an advance into Bulgaria. The war was now in its third year, and each of the combatants was battered, but also battle-hardened. In 1916, the three longest land battles in history were being fought simultaneously at the Somme, Verdun, and in Galicia with the Brusilov Offensive. The troops fighting these battles were no longer fresh-faced and naive, but experienced and determined. Their nations had reorganised themselves to become military workshops, and were able to churn out munitions and supplies at rates far faster than countries newly entering the conflict. The British and French were both keen for Romania to end the war, seeing them as the biggest force in Europe not yet engaged. But Russia was not. While Romania remained neutral, their eastern flank was protected. But as soon as Romania got involved, Russia would be forced to divert men and material to defend it. Romania was full of food and oil, things the Central Powers badly needed, and had a very inexperienced army 
and a shaky supply system. Now, what the Entente had in mind for Romania was for them to send the majority of her forces south to support their offensive against Bulgaria, while only sending a small defensive force north to protect against Austria-Hungary. But of course, Romania was never going to do that, as their principal war aim was to take Transylvania. So they did it the other way around. They made significant initial gains as the Austro-Hungarians were reeling from the battering the Russians were inflicting upon them. But then three things went badly wrong for Romania. The first was that the French failed to launch their attack against Bulgaria, meaning that Romania's southern flank was now dangerously exposed. Second, the Brusilov offensive stalled. No longer able to keep up the relentless pressure, and with their troops exhausted, the Russians called a halt to the attack, granting the Austro-Hungarians a reprieve and allowing them to reallocate some forces. And the third was a decision made in the German high command. All major operations on all fronts were hereby cancelled. Their primary focus was now on Romania and its wheat and oil fields. Now, these three things would be bad enough if the Romanians had been well prepared for war, but they weren't. It had an army of over half a million men, but they were inexperienced, poorly equipped, and lacked the heavy guns needed to fight a modern war. In mid-September, the Central Powers launched their counter-attack against Romania from the south and the west. Soon the Romanian army was retreating back through its own territory. Missy had sprung into action the moment that war had been declared. She had two main areas of focus. The first was support the troops. It was then that she published her first book called My Country, a short collection of sketches on Romanian country life with all proceeds donated to the Red Cross. Unlike Alex, Marie didn't do any nursing herself, but focused on raising money for hospitals and then going on morale-boosting visits. She also got her children involved, handing out meals and cheer to wounded soldiers. The second was in utilising her familial relationships in Britain and Russia to persuade them to offer more support to Romania. For example, when the Allied advance through Bulgaria failed to materialise, she wrote the following to King George. Quote, We are living through anxious days. Our frontiers are very long. We have enemies on both sides and we are new to war, to the modern horror of war. We are a small country and we are risking our existence. We know it, but we have courage and confidence in the final result. Our people are so enthusiastic for the Transylvanian side, they are inclined to overlook the great danger of the Bulgarians, who are good soldiers and hate us with a deadly hate. I only hope Russia will keep her promise and will not leave us in the lurch. It would be disastrous for us, as well as for the Entente, if the Bulgarians were not beaten. With the Bulgarians well beaten, the face of things would certainly change. They are not an enemy one can afford to despise, for they are courageous, ambitious, false, they are led by Germans, have German artillery, and are also fighting for their existence. Large countries cannot realise what little countries have to face at such moments. We know this. And yet we felt that war must be, for the sake of our future, for the sake of the good cause. We are separated from England by the whole of Europe, yet we feel that England can be our great support, and it is England that we trust. I want you to understand that at this moment, I am only considering the general cause. The Bulgarians must be beaten. That would mean the fall of Constantinople. Serbia saved the Allies' armies on the Danube and the circle around the Central Powers quite closed and getting tighter and tighter. This letter is just a confidential letter from cousin to cousin, written badly, written in haste, because my hands are full and there is so much to do and to see to which one must do oneself. Once more, let me tell you that I am happy we are together in these great and terrible times. Let me have the feeling that we can always turn to you when in need as there may be very hard times to face. I am not afraid, but I am anxious. My best love to May, your affectionate cousin, Missy. 
As the Central Powers pressed their attack and advanced into Romania itself, she wrote the following letter to her cousin, Tsar Nicholas, the leader of the only allied country that could help them. Quote, My dear Nicky, if I write to you today, it is not as a cousin, but as queen of a country I dearly love. We have bravely entered this war, well knowing what we are doing, and that our resources are not beyond a certain limit. From all sides, our allies assured us that when we came in, such tremendous efforts would be made on all the fronts at once, that we would not find ourselves fighting against forces quite beyond what we could cope with. Now we have come to the realisation that we are facing tremendous and immediate danger, and that unless we are helped at once, it may be too late. We may have to experience all the horrors of invasion and destruction. It is as a woman, and as a queen, that I make my appeal to you. To the man and to the emperor, send us the help we ask for at once. It is not a question of weeks, but of days. I am trying to save my country by every means, and nothing shall I leave undone. And surely there has been already too much bloodshed and destruction. If we are not to be destroyed, we must be helped, and you alone can help us, and must help us. Nicky, I ask no forgiveness for sending you this letter, because when one stands before the greatest crisis in one's existence, when one sees the danger of the destruction of all one has built up, and all one has lived for, of all one loves, then it is one's duty to stand up and cry for help. Your loving cousin, Missy. These letters were passionately written and pull at the hard strings but sadly had little effect on the Allied effort to support Romania. Like it or not, she was more or less on her own and facing the combined might of the Central Powers on two fronts. By October, all their armies were in retreat, and much of northern and western Wallachia was in enemy hands. Only then did the Entente take Romania's plight seriously, sending French General Henri Bertolo to be a military adviser. I think Missy would have preferred a French army to a French general, but she rather liked the rotund and charming Bertolo. He strengthened the Romanian resolve and brought some much-needed competence to the military leadership, but the situation was still dire. This military reverse was then matched with personal tragedy for Missy, as her youngest child, Mercia, suddenly took ill with typhoid fever. She wrote, quote, Day of struggle and anguish, Three times my Mercia nearly slipped away. Towards evening, a ray of hope. The night was terrible. Saw General Bertolo and had a long, earnest conversation with him, as I consider that he is the man who must help us save our country. He has more experience than we have, and we must listen to him. Told him my child was dying, that perhaps God would ask this cruel sacrifice of me. But in spite of this terrible thing, which was now completely absorbing me, I wanted to speak to him of my country so that I should not lose both country and child at once. Her diary entries at this time are full of worry and anguish. Always torn between her duties as an active queen during wartime and a mother with a child at death's door, she was continually rushing here and there, always worrying, always fearful. On one such day she wrote, quote, after my visit to the wounded, who this day gave me as much sympathy as I gave them, I had to go up somewhere to be congratulated by the ministers. They too avoid many words. The room is full of flowers, beautiful flowers, but my only thought was perhaps they will be laid on a grave. I made supreme efforts for an hour and a half, then I flew to my motor and dashed home. What a pace we went. I shut my eyes, the wind beat and tore at me. Was I alive or dead, or was I a ghost, or simply dreaming? After four of the longest days of Missy's life, Mercia finally lost his battle and died at the age of just three. He was buried at the chapel at Cotraceni. Quote, The church was full of white chrysanthemums and lighted tapers. Many people crowded around me. The church was crammed, but I recognised no one. The little coffin, which I had wrapped around with an old piece of red and golden brocade, was let down beneath the stones of the church. Everything was dead in me, and when I stepped out again into the daylight, I felt like a ghost, 
and all the faces looking at me were the faces of ghosts. The whole world was dead. Missy was filled with grief, but she did not have time to let it consume her, for she had a country to try and save. The enemy crossed the Danube in late November 1916, and now was threatening Bucharest. Missy sped in an open car from hospital to hospital, trying to raise spirits. She spoke to generals, wrote to family and friends constantly, and did her best to raise morale, but it was hard work. Throughout all of this, she received very little support from her husband, who was based at army headquarters. Luckily, she had two people in her inner circle that kept her going. The first, of course, was Barbo Sturbe, who was her link with Army HQ. He would spend long days there working on the war, and then come see Missy and tell her what was going on and let her ask questions. The other was Colonel Bailiff, her chief of staff, whom she described as a, quote, somewhat austere and unbending, but entirely competent and reliable cavalry officer. He was not someone for, quote, amiable conversation or light talk, and gave her, quote, solid military advice, sometimes hard and dreadful, but always terribly to the point. Although she never travelled to the front line, she saw firsthand the horrors of war. Here is a typical day from November 1916, quote, Decided to go off with Bailiff and Madame Morodi by motor to Camp Oulong to see how far I can go and in what condition I shall find the hospitals, the wounded, the troops, the population. There I found a hospital for first aid, by far the most painful to see. The wounded were just being brought in straight from the trenches, wretched, miserable, tattered pieces of humanity, all bloody in their torn and dirty uniforms, infinitely more pathetic thus than in their beds, as here I saw them in all their exhausted misery. Some were but slightly wounded, some seriously, others had frozen feet, and two were dying with fractured skulls. They lay in their litters they had been carried away from the battlefield. Their faces were livid, and the sinister sound of their death rattle filled the room. I went about amongst the wounded, talking to them and distributing my modest gifts. The soldiers fully realised who I was, and I saw how happy they were that I had come to search them out so near the front. I also hunted for General Kotescu, who was in command of them, with another general whose name I do not remember. They were delighted and astonished to see me so unexpectedly. The boom of the cannon followed us part of the way back. We lunched somewhere on the road, disturbed by aeroplanes, so that once we even had to take refuge under a bridge. Missy was getting increasingly frustrated with her husband, who paid her and the children little heed. On the 11th of November, she confided in her diary that, quote, Although the situation is desperate, he never sent me a message of any kind, has taken no measures for our evacuation, has let me know nothing about what I am to do. Luckily, I have Barbo and Bailiff, so there are chances that I should not be taken prisoner. Indeed, it was not the king, but Barbo Sturbe, who finally told her that she had to flee the capital. The next morning, she went to see her husband to find out where it was that she was supposed to go. She was angered to find Nando somewhat bemused, Clearly he hadn't given the matter much thought, only mumbling that he thought the bailiff and Sturbe must have arranged something. In a rather icy tone, she responded with the following, quote, I prayed him not to make any efforts, that I was accustomed to look after myself, at which he seemed relieved, little realising what my words actually meant. That night, she left Bucharest to Jassy, the capital of Moldavia, a city only a few miles away from the border with Russia. A few weeks later, Bucharest fell, with the king, Crown Prince and Sturbe only just getting out in time, joining Missy in Jassy. The whole Romanian government was in disarray. It had not occurred to them that disaster on this scale might happen. Three quarters of the Kingdom of Romania now lay in enemy hands. Luckily, the British had sent in a team to dismantle some of the oil fields before the Germans arrived, but they could do little to prevent the occupying armies from systematically plundering the countryside and cities of Romania. Many wealthy Romanians, including Missy's friend Martha Bibesco, remained and tried to make the best of it, but the real hardship was faced by ordinary citizens 
who faced a winter of hardship, cold, and starvation. Missy's self-appointed role as Romania's head of morale was now more vital than ever before. With the government and king focusing on the war, she was the only one available to the people, and so was inundated with visitors wanting this or that. Quote, I was overrun by people of every kind beseeching my help. Everyone came to see me, the Jassyites as well as the foreigners, and each one had something to protest or complain about, and it was all I could do not to lose my head in this maddening pandemonium. I was myself a refugee with no house of my own. Most of my worldly possessions left at Cotraceni, and what I had with me still packed away in great cases in the train. Besides, everyone was in a state of panic. The authorities were at their wits' ends, many had lost their heads, and even I, the Queen, had nowhere to go. So what could I do to help? Despite the disastrous way the war had gone to that point, Missy had total faith that the Entente would prevail. And once they did, Romania would surely gain its pre-war aims at the peace negotiations. If, however, Romania were to submit, she would get nothing. It was vital, therefore, to stay the course, otherwise they would have endured this hardship for nothing. Missy used her influence to talk the king into forming a government of national unity, featuring politicians from both the Liberal and Conservative parties. This move was adamantly opposed by Prime Minister Bratianow, who threatened to, quote, crush me, the woman, with his superiority, and to make me understand that if we were to be opponents, mine would be the losing hand. Missy, who had never been particularly disposed to take well to threats, ignored him, and got her way thanks to some work behind the scenes done by Barbo Serbe. When she wasn't bolstering the government, she was in her Red Cross uniform and doing vital work for the soldiers and citizens of Jassy. The city was small and was not set up to deal with the massive influx of refugees, let alone all the wounded that poured in every day. The hospitals were unheated, badly equipped and lacked food. Missy harangued the government into ensuring that these hospitals went from being literal death traps to actual places of healing. Every morning she got up early to greet the train bearing wounded soldiers. She accompanied them to the hospitals and spoke to as many as she could. Her work did not go unnoticed, and she started to gain a reputation as a kind of combined Bodicea and Florence Nightingale, a warrior queen who healed the sick. This was a tough time for Missy, who knew that she had to maintain her reputation of indefatigability, even when inside she felt overwhelmed by the pressures placed upon her. So she was forced to suffer in silence, while appearing a picture of strength to everyone else. Romania's future now entirely depended on the Russians, but while their troops were the only people left to hold the line, they were also a menace, ransacking storehouses and assaulting women. On Christmas Day 1916, a Russian offensive on which Romania had been depending suddenly failed. Missy pitched the idea that she should go herself to Cesar Nicholas and implore him to deploy the necessary troops to save Romania. She was the cousin of both the Tsar and Tsarina after all. She had influence that others did not. Plus, if she went, then the Prime Minister and King could focus on the war. The King was all for it, but the Prime Minister was opposed. Quote, Bretiarnau's objection was that this step would not be in keeping with the dignity of the crown. I declare that a queen was never humiliated unless she felt humiliated. But if I did not at least offer to take the step, I should always have the feeling that I had not done my utmost to save my country, although it was almost unbearably difficult to leave just now, having so much to do and so many depending upon me. Of course the mission might be hopeless and useless, yet I offered to go. What more could I do? Eventually, she got her way. But then disastrous news came from Petrograd. Rasputin had been murdered, and the Russian nobility was in revolt against Empress Alex. It was agreed then that perhaps now was not the best time for Alex to receive one of her cousins. Besides, Russia had problems enough without having to deal with Romania's. So Romanian troops kept retreating east, Russian troops being the only thing preventing the whole country from being lost. It must then have come as quite a shock when, in March 1918, 
news reached Romania of the overthrow of the Tsar and the installation of a new Republican government. This provoked two great fears in Romania. First, that of Russia dropping out of the war, and second, of a similar revolution taking place in Romania. The first fear was quickly assuaged, as the Russian provisional government promised to continue the fighting. The second, though, required quick action. Missy Sturbe and Nando prepared a speech for the king to give to his people, promising land and political reforms once the war was over. It was vital for the monarchy to be seen to be doing its part, and so Missy redoubled her own work and made sure it was noticed. She became famous for refusing to wear gloves when visiting soldiers in typhus wards. She wrote articles in soldiers' newspapers and was always on the move, visiting towns in the small part of Romania that it still controlled and passing off supplies whenever she drove past refugees. She often brought her children along, who were exposed, some of them at quite a young age, to the full horror of war. She was particularly impressed with her son Carol, who was finally beginning to show some signs of maturity, and by her 17-year-old daughter Mignon, who took up full-time work at a hospital. 1917 began brightly for the Romanian army. A joint offensive with the Russians in July saw them regain some territory, but while the Romanians fought well, the Russian army was in a state of complete collapse. Unable to shoulder the fight on their own, the Romanians were forced to withdraw from the lands that they had recaptured. Now it seemed quite likely the Central Powers troops would take the whole of Romania, and Missy was forced to make plans for a hasty evacuation from Jassy. However, a hard-fought win at the Battle of Marasesi in August saved Romania from total occupation. Indeed, if it were not for the appalling state of the Russian army, Romanian troops may have been able to have made significant gains. But the Russian military was rotten with Bolshevism, and so things in Romania more or less stayed as they were for the rest of the summer and autumn, with neither side strong enough to attack the other. And then disaster struck again. Lenin the Bolsheviks took power in Russia, and announced that the country was pulling out of the war. This left an enormous hole in the front line that the Romanian army alone could not plug, not to mention that there were now thousands of demod Russian soldiers milling about in Jassy, with no one to enforce discipline. It is perhaps astonishing that given the presence of so many radicalised soldiers, the Romanian peasants did not rise in revolt. But thanks to Missy's efforts, the Romanian monarchy was popular enough to maintain its position. However, it was clear to all now that Romania had to come to terms with the central powers. She was surrounded by enemies and had no allies that could help her, and was not strong enough to continue the fight alone. Everyone agreed that peace was the only option. Everyone, that is, except Missy. She had a plan. The king should lead the army into southern Russia, build their strength, and then counterattack. As I said earlier, her worry was that if Romania were to capitulate, then this whole thing would have been for nothing. Their allies, if they won the war, would no longer be bound to go through with their obligations to Romania. Many tried to talk Missy round, but all failed. In her diary, Missy related an occasion when a British general attached the Romanian army, trying to tell her that it was all over. Quote, I turned fiercely round upon him, and asked him how he, an Englishman, dared to come to an English woman, and into the bargain a queen, and tell her she must give up. If we are to die... Let our allies at least know that we do not die like blind fools, but as conscious heroes, knowing that we have been sold and betrayed, and that at the moment when, through the failures of others, our front is becoming useless, our big protectors begin to haggle and bargain with us as to whether they will be able to keep any of the promises given to us when we were still prosperous before the Russian Revolution cut our throats. But even she could not talk around the government and the king. And so, in December 1917, Romania signed an armistice with the Central Powers. Nando and his government then began full peace negotiations. A tentative deal was reached in March, whereby Romania agreed to cede a province to Austria-Hungary, demobilise its forces, hand over all its equipment, allow Central Powers troops to march through the country at will, 
and to lease its oil fields for the next 90 years. Missy was beside herself with fury at this deal, and persuaded Nando that he could not sign it. It would mean the end of an independent Romania. What was the point of peace if the terms were so harsh? Her opposition to the treaty in the face of the government, which was in favour, garnered her the moniker of being, quote, truly the only man in Romania. But while the king refused to sign the peace, the government ratified it anyway. The press in the UK and the United States hailed Romania's defiant queen. But to the Romanian government, she was quickly becoming an irritant. Quote, My husband was at first very displeased with me, and there were heated arguments, but he finally realised that I was in no mood to be trifled with. I could, if necessary, hold my tongue, but I could not be bent to the will of those today at the helm, so it was better that we should meet as seldom as possible. I made no secret of my feelings, and the king, in the end, conceded that I should be more useful amongst the soldiers and peasants than in Jassy, where I was in open opposition with all and everything that was going on. Missy was, therefore, forced into a kind of internal exile in rural Moldavia, and there was joined by a man called Joseph Boyle, a man with whom she became very close and would prove indispensable to her. Joe Boyle was a Canadian adventurer who had fought in the early years of the war and then had been sent to Russia to help reorganise its railway system. He was a wealthy man, having made his fortune in the Klondike gold rush, and he spent a great deal of the money helping out Romanian peasants during the winters of 1916 and 1917. He became famous for many spectacular exploits, including saving a group of Romanian deputies from being lynched by the Bolsheviks, unearthing a German plot to assassinate the Romanian royal family, and spiriting out of Russia a great deal of Romania's currency reserves. To Missy, Boyle was precisely what she looked for in a man, Dashing, decisive, and daring. She described him as, quote, a freelance, recognised no authorities and obeyed no orders except those dictated to him by his own conscience. He was a refreshing personality, and his quiet, almost insolent strength seemed to me a rock amidst tumultuous seas. Stolid, immutable, not to be shaken. He was then, in short, a man of action who truly cared for the suffering of the Romanian people. He was indeed very much like Missy. Together with Barbo Sturbe, the three of them worked to keep the pressure on the king not to give in to the central power's demands, and to ensure that the Romanian people did not overly suffer. The new Romanian government was pro-German, willing to do anything to placate their new masters. Every aspect of the Romanian economy was surrendered to the central powers and there was a great deal of incendiary propaganda published excoriating Missy. She did what she could, but while the country was under German and Austro-Hungarian occupation, there was little she could do. Against the Romanian government's wishes, she and Nando attended a requiem for the fallen ceremony at Jassy. She later wrote, I stood before my high throne chair dressed in my white Red Cross uniform, a candle in my hand, and looked down upon the congregation and felt so entirely the mother of this suffering, torn, and often mistaken yet dearly loved people, that when the fine chorus swelled through the great church, a tremendous emotion took possession of me. I thought I was destined to be a happy, brilliant, successful queen. All within me seemed to promise this, and I seemed made for that part. But, perhaps on the contrary, my lot is to be a tragic, vanquished queen." I had no vocation for a martyr's part, and yet it looked as though God had singled out Nando and myself to bear a cross which at times seems almost too heavy. However, while all seemed lost in the early summer months of 1918, not long after, the news from the Western Front was getting better. The British and French forces, joined now by the Americans, were on the advance. Hope was rising that maybe victory could be seized from the jaws of defeat. But then, just as news from the war was improving, a new shock rocked the Romanian royal family. Prince Carol, the heir to the throne, had eloped with a commoner. Okay, so that's a bit of a whiplash of change of pace, isn't it? Carol was by now 24 years old, 
He was serving in the army, though hadn't seen much way in the way of fighting, and was far better known as a playboy than as a soldier. His bride was Zizi Lambrino, the daughter of a Romanian general. They had been together for several years, but had hidden the strength of their romance from Carol's parents. Carol wanted to marry Zizi, but there was a problem. Indeed, the same one that had dogged his father all those years before. The heir to the Romanian throne was constitutionally barred from marrying anyone that wasn't a foreign princess. Unlike his father, who had given up his love, Carol did, you know, the other thing. He deserted his regiment, a crime usually punishable by death, and slipped across the border into Russia to elope. Missy called it, quote, a staggering family tragedy, which hit us suddenly, a stunning blow for which we were entirely unprepared. While at the heart of this were two young people who were very much in love, this incident was incredibly dangerous for the dynasty. Attacked on all sides, and with plots all around, they needed all the positive press they could get. Instead, they got this. The very real danger here was that the occupying forces could use this opportunity to force Ferdinand to abdicate, remove Carol from the line of succession, leaving on the throne young Prince Nicholas, a boy of 15, whom they could easily control. Missy was determined not to lose her eldest son, and so worked hard to form a compromise. She, Boyle and Sturbe managed to persuade the couple to annul their marriage, at least until the war was over. As punishment for deserting his post, Carol was forced to spend two and a half months in a mountain monastery and be denounced in public as a traitor. The Romanian Supreme Court then annulled the marriage. Missy called it a, quote, cruel and sickening victory. She had managed to safeguard the dynasty and potentially save the Romanian monarchy, but at what cost? Meanwhile, though, news from abroad was getting ever more promising. Bulgaria had sued for peace after a major Allied advance through Macedonia in September 1918. And by October, it was clear that both Austria-Hungary and Turkey were on the verge of collapse. Since King Ferdinand had still not signed the peace treaty, Romania was able to re-enter the war. But first, she wanted to extract a guarantee from the Entente that the promise of regaining Transylvania would be honoured. As part of the government's negotiations, Missy worked her contacts, writing to King George urging him to make sure that Romania's contribution to the war would be honoured. She also worked with Sturbe and Boyle to ensure that victory in the war would not be marred by a communist takeover. With revolutionary Russia on the doorstep, it was vital that promises of reform were enacted. Therefore, despite the king's misgivings, he went through with the package of reforms he had agreed to 18 months before including universal suffrage and land reform. On the 9th of October 1918, Romania remobilized for war. Two days later, Germany signed the armistice with the Entente. World War I had finally ended. On Armistice Day, Missy arrived in Jesse to find a surprise reception had been thrown for her. She was greeted off the train by her husband, whom she hugged with delight and his new government. Then the French government representative stepped forward and awarded her the Croix de Guerre for being, quote, an unshakable, loyal and faithful friend, as firm in the hour of disaster as in the hour of success. A month later, they made their triumphant re-entry into Bucharest, exactly two years to the day from when she had been forced to flee the capital. The day was grey, the buildings were hollowed out shells, but the survivors of the German occupation came out in their droves to cheer the royal family. She wrote, quote, The town had gone absolutely mad. It was as though the houses, as well as the pavement, were cheering with the crowd. Flags everywhere, undulating from the windows, from the housetops, from the flagposts, flags in the hands of every child. It was a giddy waving of red, yellow and blue. Later that day, the Romanian army offered King Ferdinand a special honour. Missy had talked to the new Minister of War a little earlier, and persuaded him to offer the king the new rank of Field Marshal. 
It was a complete surprise to her husband, who, deeply touched, accepted the honour. The end of the war brought new challenges to the Kingdom of Romania. The country had been ransacked by their occupiers. Hundreds of thousands of people were homeless, and famine stalked the land. There were barely any railway engines to transport people and goods around the country, and people returned to towns that had been destroyed by war. Unlike most countries, Romania did not demobilise her forces, sending them instead into Transylvania and the other territories that had been promised by their allies, presumably because possession is nine-tenths of the law. This doubled the size of Romania, both in terms of land and population, which was great, except that it meant that they now had nearly 10 million more mouths to feed than they did before. The difficulties of adjusting to this new post-war reality meant that there was a great deal of unrest in the country and a good deal of work for Missy to do. She was determined to be open and available to the people, which meant that she had a never-ending queue of people to meet every day who told her their grievances and she did her best to hear them and deal with their complaints. She was also very concerned with getting her Romanov relatives out of Russia and sent her friend-slash-lover Joe Boyle twice into the country on rescue missions. She invited one of them, Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna, who you may remember as being the ward of Grand Duchess Ella, to stay with her in Bucharest. Maria later wrote that, quote, Of all the royal families still in possession of their thrones, and all more or less related to us, it was only from them that we met with real sympathy. However, while she did a fantastic job with these tasks, Missy's talents were needed on a far grander stage. In 1919, the victorious powers gathered in Paris to reshape the map of post-war Europe. This was, undoubtedly, the most important conference Europe had seen since the Congress of Vienna, and it was where the fortunes of nations would be decided. At its heart were the Big Four. President Woodrow Wilson of the US, and Prime Ministers Georges Clemenceau, David Lloyd George, and Vittorio Orlando of France, the UK, and Italy, respectively. They were the big decision makers, and it was they that the Romanian delegation, led by Prime Minister Bratianau, had to win over. But there was a problem. Romania had dropped out of the war in 1917, and so the Big Four were not greatly disposed to honouring their pre-war commitments. Bratianau was a canny politician, but he lacked the vision, the tact, and the charm to win foreign leaders over to Romania's cause. In the words of Missy's biographer, Hannah Pakula, quote, Bratiano doctored historical facts, trying to play the great powers off against one another, and managed to offend everyone he had come to Paris to woo. Woodrow Wilson disliked Bratiano so much that he refused to meet with him, while Britain's Balkan expert attached to the conference said, quote, No man could have been more foolish, unreasonable, irritable, or provocative than Jan Bratiano. He so mishandled the Romania cause at the conference that he estranged the most ardent friends of Romania. In fairness to Bratiano, almost every small country was finding themselves elbowed out by the Big Four, and so were caught between being too bullish and looked down on, or too meek and therefore ignored. Towing the line between these was a delicate business, and only suited to a small number of people, and it was clear to everyone that Missy was the person for the job. Not only did she have the natural charm and charisma needed for the role, she was internationally respected, well-versed in all the geopolitics, and had family connections that one could just not buy. However, her previous experience was only with monarchs within the family and Romanian politicians. This grand international stage was quite the place to make your debut, and there was so much at stake. Romanians had died in their hundreds of thousands the land that their country now claimed. It was up to Missy to secure it for them. Before she left for France, she studied hard, making sure she knew everything that there was to know about the people she needed to schmooze and the argument she had to make. It was a daunting task, but one for which she was very excited. Quote, I'm flattered they all think that I can help. What is more... I feel that I can help. But as she boarded the train to Paris, seen off by a cheering crowd, 
She felt the enormity of the task overwhelm her for a time. Quote, Romanians have an almost mystic belief in my powers, which flatters and upholds me, but which makes me feel a bit anxious. One woman's word cannot change the face of such big events. Events, however, are about to prove Missy very wrong. Her goal was to secure Transylvania, Bukovina, Dobruja and Banat for Romania, all of which had before been ruled by the now-dissolved Austria-Hungary. Anything less than that would be seen as a betrayal and could have disastrous consequences for the Romanian government and the monarchy itself. Now, the Paris Peace Conference was not a place where kings and queens were expected to throw their weight around. World War I had seen a bonfire of monarchies across the continent, with the victorious nations either being limited constitutional monarchies or republics. Missy was not there as part of the official delegation. That was made very clear. But unofficially, she could have great influence if she played her cards carefully and skillfully. She installed herself in a suite of 20 rooms at the Riss in the Place Vendôme and set up a court. She had come dressed for battle. Quote, there were in all some 60 gowns, 31 coats, 22 fur pieces, 29 hats, and 83 pairs of slippers. Perhaps it seems a good many. Still, I feel that this is no time to economise. You see, Romania simply has to have Transylvania. And what if, for a lack of gown, a concession should be lost? She began by working the press, giving interviews and spreading a bit of royal glamour. Reporters across the city lapped her up. The great French writer Colette was swept off her feet by Missy, writing, quote, She is magnificent. The morning was grey, but Queen Marie carried light within her. The glitter of her golden hair, the clarity of her pink and white complexion, the glow of her imperious yet soft eyes, such an apparition renders one speechless. Happy the city of Paris, who can welcome such a beautiful queen. Soon, the Place Vendôme was full of fans, well-wishers and reporters, all clamouring for a chance to meet with or even just see Missy. Quote, Everybody fusses about me. I am treated as a sort of heroine. All the journalists of the globe seem to be circling round me. I smilingly pass through the rush, noise and confusion, doing my best to remain calm and not lose my head. I am interviewed, photographed, pressed, honoured, invited here, there, everywhere. Now that she had made her entrance, she needed to get down to business. Every morning she was briefed by the Romanian delegation, and then spent her day talking to politicians, officials and reporters. In the evenings, she went to parties, receptions and operatic performances, all in a quest to see and be seen, to press the flesh and work her contacts. Her biggest test came when she met the French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau. Romania had historically been close to France, but Clemenceau, nicknamed the Tiger, was vehemently opposed to Romania's demands. Indeed, when they met for the first time, he apparently shouted, quote, I don't like your Prime Minister! To which Missy smiled and replied, Perhaps then you'll find me more agreeable. They met in his private office, one-to-one. Missy later wrote, quote, He has certain grievances against Romania, to which he sticks like a leech, and at certain moments we glared at each other like two fighters. I quite enjoyed it, but he certainly had no intention to be convinced. Their discussion was intense and passionate. Clemenceau attacked Romania's separate peace, and Missy deftly parried his strikes, arguing that she had had no choice but to do so. She then raised Romania's territorial claims, to which Clemenceau countered that other nations had claims that were as just to those regions. She knew, though, that her efforts were having an effect, as when she rose to leave, she waved her back into her seat, saying, quote, I have plenty of time for you. You do not whine as some do. You speak up. I like that. She made more progress in that one meeting than the Romanian delegation achieved in months of negotiations. Her next big move was a visit to London to meet the King and Queen. Her arrival was preceded by a prominent feature in the Times, entitled The Resurrection of Romania, and included an interview with Missy 
along with a hagiographical write-up of her country's struggle during the war. She was greeted at the station by King George and Queen Mary, and invited to stay at Buckingham Palace. There, she discovered quite how much she had changed since she had left for Romania. British courtly life was far blander, more conventional, and concerned with tradition than she was used to. Still, she did her best, speaking to members of the government, meeting with dignitaries, and giving interviews to the press. This was hard, tiring work, but once again yielded promising results. On her return to Paris, she found her popularity there had only grown with her absence. The crowds were bigger, the praise more effusive. However, she finally met a match when she met the US President Woodrow Wilson and his advisor Herbert Hoover. They had the power to end the Romanian famine, but they were not in any way disposed to help Romania. Wilson, no lover of monarchy, was unimpressed with Missy Stick, and she too was unimpressed with him, thinking him somewhat up himself, a jumped-up American with a messiah complex. But the Americans aside, Missy had been a massive hit in Paris. She had won the French government over to her cause, and had charmed the British contingent as well. So, at the height of her success, she decided not to outstay her welcome. The train that she took back to Bucharest was laden with food, medicines and other supplies to relieve the suffering of the Romanian people, and with the promise of more to come. But even better, the treaty that was eventually signed saw Romania achieve almost all its goals. Transylvania was granted to them, along with most of the other coveted territory. At the stroke of a pen, Romania had become the fifth largest country in Europe. One observer at the conference said, quote, I know no one who went away from Paris with more satisfactory annexations than did Marie of Romania. The Queen arrived at the peace conference from a kingdom numbering 8 million subjects. She departed the ruler of 18 million. And it is there, with Missy departing Paris in triumph, that I will leave you for this week. Next time, we will see Missy finally crowned as Queen of the newly enlarged Romania, and work to marry her children off advantageously. Her years of toil were now surely over. Now she could truly enjoy her time as queen. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.